You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story that offers insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as much as inspiring insight for the journey. Today's episode, number nine, is the first week in the second Religion and Fiction book club. Using one of my own books that I thought would be perfect for the new year. Thanks for joining. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, thanks so much for joining me on episode nine of the Religion and Fiction podcast. Which is also week one of round two of the Religion and Fiction book club. Loved it so much the first time putting together the episodes that made up the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book club from 2020 and wanted to do it again at the start of a brand spanking new year because you know what? Those are the best times to do book clubs, especially the kind that I envision using one of my first books that I wrote called A Reimagined Faith. I'm not going to go into the backstory behind this book, which I went into in the introductory episode from last week, number eight. But the idea is to look at the spiritual journey of a character, Peter Daniel Young, who hits a sort of crisis of faith because of a few things going on in his life. And it's that journey that I thought could be helpful for some other people at the start of the year, wrestling with a whole host of questions about faith, life, everything in between. Because I don't know about you, but at the beginning of the year, I tend to wrestle with those kinds of questions. And because I not only write stories, but I love to read them I tend to engage those sorts of searching moments and questioning moments by diving into the story of another person, specifically uh, a novel that I want to be able to empathize with what that character is going through and thinking, their emotions, their conflict, and how they resolve that conflict and the tension within themselves while also navigating the tension with other people. And this book has it all. And I hope that the next five weeks as we explore Peter's story, which, if you listened to last episode, also mirrors my own story a little bit. 20 years ago, when I had my own crisis of faith and was wrestling with these questions, my hope is that you will be able to come to a place in your own life where you might not find all the answers, but get closer to what you're looking for. Now, before we get into the actual chapters, I'd like to back up to the prologue. Last week in the introductory episode, I read that prologue, and I'm going to plop it right here again, because it sets the stage for the rest of the book as well as the rest of the book club. So enjoy the prologue read by Mua from A Reimagined Faith. They call it the soul's dark night, that gauntlet of spiritual doubt, frustration, and crisis 
on one's journey toward full union with God. St. John of the Cross wrote the book on it. Teresa of Lusso was plunged headlong into its icy darkness. Even Mother Teresa, that shining, shimmering example of Christian faithfulness, experienced its wet blanket suffocation for nearly 50 years. Apparently, I was in good company. It was comforting to know that I wasn't alone as I traveled through the angsty ravine of faith deconstruction and reconstruction, the likes of which I'd never experienced before. I was comforted that others had traversed its rocky paths ahead of me, charting a course and serving as trusted guides and kindred spirits for my own exploration of the outer reaches of faith. For I was wholly ill-equipped for that leg of my spiritual journey. Questioning the Bible and faith and God were never allowed in my neck of the Christian woods. I was bred the kind of Christian who accepted faith at face value. We all were, generations deep. God said it, that settles it, I believe it, was the foundation upon which my beliefs bloomed from seedling to petal daffodil. Yet, when the winds blew, the rain came, and the waters rose, that foundation couldn't hold my faith's rickety structure. I discovered, as much to my family's surprise as my own, that it was a facade assembled with duct tape and bailing wire. I've realized there comes a time in the pilgrimage of every Christian through this life when they reach a crisis moment. Storytellers have a word for this sort of thing. Inciting incident, they call it. A catalyst, a fork in the road. A blue-red pill moment when you're beckoned, wooed, shoved face forward and summoned to decide the fate of your own faith for yourself. For some, that moment comes through the fiery furnace of political oppression where the summoning happens in a dark, dank cell, staring down the barrel of a shotgun or dangling from the end of a slipknot. For others, it's less dramatic, yet just as petrifying. Social oppression might force the choice between family blood or Christ's blood. Professional oppression might force the choice between remaining closeted or coming out, so to speak. Regardless of the how, the what is always the same. The day of reckoning for me, Peter Daniel Young, came through the most unlikeliest of places, religious vocation. Which made sense the more I thought about it, because it's when we are most required to give a reason for the hope we have in Christ that we are also required to own that reason, to own the scaffolding of reasons that have been assembled over the years to support the elements of that faith, whether for others or for one's self. For over 25 years on this rock of a planet, I had cobbled together an assortment of planks and beams to construct my faith. Come to find out, they weren't as stable as I once assumed. One by one, I found them disconnecting and tumbling all around me as I helped mentor college students, walking with them through life and their own spiritual journey. The Lord seemed to be dismantling the Christian structure I had carefully pieced together over the years. And that was all at once frightening and exhilarating. I didn't have a clue where the path cutting through the valley of death's dark shadow would lead me. Whether I would survive my deconstruction and evolve into a new state of faith through my reconstruction efforts. Or whether it would destroy me and my faith. All I knew was this. I couldn't go back 
to where I was. Yet, I didn't have a clue where I was going. This is the story of my faith's death and rebirth. This is my story, reimagining the Christian faith. So at the start of this book club, I'd love for you to consider how you yourself have similarly experienced a dark night of the soul. Just like what I described in the prologue that my character, Peter Daniel Young, experienced, and in many ways what I myself experienced 20 years ago. What was that like, and how did you navigate it? Listen to those last lines again of the prologue. The character, Peter, is the speaker here, and he says, I couldn't go back to where I was, yet I didn't have a clue where I was going. This is the story of my faith's death and rebirth. This is my story reimagining the Christian faith. Do you resonate at all with those lines, that sentiment of not having a clue where to go, but all you know is that you can't go back and you can't stay where you're at when it comes to your faith and your life and how you're answering those big, deep questions that we all ask ourselves late at night, uh, oftentimes after throwing back a few, right? (laughs) Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Why am I so messed up? Why is the world so messed up? And what's the fix to our messed upness? Well, all of that is a lot of what I was asking 20 years ago, and it's exactly what Peter's asking in these opening chapters, mostly because of, uh, well, Let's get into it, because soon enough we find out what sparks, especially the deep dive into his own sort of crisis of faith. So chapter one, we open with Peter at his Monday morning ministry meeting with a number of characters that uh, in many ways mirror the coworkers that I had the pleasure of doing ministry with on Capitol Hill. Part of the background that I mentioned in the introductory episode last week was how this story mirrored my own in some ways during this very pivotal moment in my own spiritual journey 20 years ago when I was a 20-something doing ministry, uh, not on campus, uh, on Georgetown University's campus like Peter Daniel did, but instead on the campus of Capitol Hill, where I met with members of Congress and their staff. And we were a ministry, not a lobbying group. Uh, We weren't lobbying for Jesus, so to speak. We weren't there for political reasons, but instead for spiritual ones, just like Peter is, walking alongside these college students, praying for them, reading the Bible with them, and exploring their questions of faith, which we'll get to very shortly. But here we are at the beginning, and one of the things I want to mention— a bit of self-reflection on my own part as the author writing Peter's character, but also for myself uh, during this season, was how often we can have sort of an attitude and a bit of arrogance about what we're feeling in the middle of doubting or questioning. Uh, And especially when those questions are unanswered, 
and we're struggling to find answers for ourselves as well as other people. You can kind of sense that at the front end, right? Because we learn in chapter two that Peter's been struggling for a bit. And he's sitting in the meeting, listening to his boss, Roger Prey, and some of the ideas he has about engaging students with uh, Alfred Morris and the evangelism training and his idea for engaging his students with this novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, which is sort of funny from the context of that time uh, when I was myself wrestling with questions, but also writing this book. Uh, and here is Peter reacting to uh, the old, older folk who represent that faith that he is resisting now, right? We, we recognize that he's not sure that he can go back and he doesn't, he knows he can't stay where he's at, but he doesn't know where to go from here. And you have these characters at the front end who are kind of representing that. And you get a bit of attitude, a bit of arrogance from him that you kind of sense as the story moves forward. Um, but I think that is reflective of a lot of us during those times when we don't know what to do, we don't know where to go, but all we know is we don't want that, and we can we can get some attitude about it. And uh, so if you're in that season of uh, wrestling and questioning, kind of see if you yourself are reflecting what how Peter's acting and and the way he's responding to those around him. And speaking of those around him, both in his ministry as well as the the characters he meets down the road, consider those who have played a part in your own journey of faith, whether exploring issues of faith or your questions or leading you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Who have those people been? How did they help you navigate those questions? And who might have been the people on the outside? who were sort of looking in and not understanding what was going on with you. Because one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I wish it was not only the book I had for myself when I was wondering what the heck was going on with my faith, but also the book that my parents would have had and uh, and others around me to help them understand what it was I was going through. So who is that for you? Who has been that community that has helped shepherd your faith? As we end chapter one, one of the more comical lines that Peter uh, has right there on page nine, if you have the print version, is that he shuffles back to his desk to retrieve my laptop and Bible, a new NIV I started using a few months ago. If Roger ever found out I was using the gender-inclusive translation, he'd blow a KJV-only gasket. (laughs) Whatever. It's what my students resonated with. It's what I resonated with. Of course, uh, those are two kinds of Bible translations, right? The New International Version and the King James Version. And those sort of tee up the disconnect here between the past and the present. Uh, The old and the new, where Peter has been and where he 
wants to go but isn't sure where he's going. And right at the beginning, you sense this tension that Peter has with within himself, but also with those around him and a bit of fear about what others might think about his direction and where he might head with his faith. And chapter two reveals that Peter's been struggling for a a bit here to know what to do with all the questions he has and the tension he has regarding the what he perceives to be the backwardness of Christianity and how anti-science it is and in a broader disconnect between the his faith that he grew up with specifically and the modern world. I imagine that uh, you yourself may have the the same kind of tension, the same kind of questions. What has that been for you and how has that tension affected your own faith. The struggle between maybe take the issue of science, which comes up a bit later with uh, his friend Clint, and uh, further in the book we'll address that tension even more between science and faith. There's a big one that can often be a sort of a stumbling block for people to embrace what the Bible teaches and relationship with God. So what has that point of tension been for you? Of course, things really turn with his friend Clint. This is what a storyteller is called the inciting incident. (laughs) That moment when everything sort of like pivots and the story changes because of this element that is introduced. And for Peter, the element that's introduced is this relationship and the questions that Clint poses. And he doesn't really know how to answer them. Even more so, he seems to have answers to questions that Clint isn't even asking. (laughs) This becomes a a bigger problem down the road when he gets into a a larger group of the students that he's mentoring spiritually. And this is part of Peter's own, I would say, maybe spiritual baggage from his past. Something that I sort of shared myself, a bit I shared in that introductory episode, with my own church background, which I'm super thankful for and really thank the Lord for giving me a solid foundation in scripture and the important, crucial beliefs for faith in Jesus Christ. But like Peter, I also seem to have answers to questions that people weren't asking. And here is Peter confronted with one of his friends questioning his faith, and that rocks him. And at the end of chapter two, this is what he wonders. He says, is there still a way forward with the Christian faith in this crazy world? With evolution and our awareness of other religions, with the human genome project for crying out loud. (laughs) Is there still a way of being Christian for Clint? For me? Man, I understand that feeling. That's where I was 20 years ago. And maybe you resonate with that feeling as well. And at the end of this chapter, I would love to know you can message me privately or leave a comment or just consider for yourself which character you most resonate with at this point, Clint or Peter, the guy who is doubting and questioning very openly and honestly in the person of Clint here, or Peter, who is at this point sort of both privately struggling and wrestling and also wondering how to even 
respond to and, and answer these questions. Well, like any of us who are caught in the tension that we find here at the end of chapter two, Peter begins to seek answers and to seek a way forward. And uh, what he stumbles across is an organization of loosely connected people called Prosurgent. Now, some of you who might be in the know regarding uh, the last eh, 10 to 20 years or so with similar conversations going in the mostly Western church, especially Protestant evangelical variety, might find a uh, commonality in the word between prosurgent and another similar conversation that went on. And that was and somewhat is, but was mostly going on during the time I myself was struggling called emergent or the emerging church. This is important background, sort of behind the scenes, if you will, because uh, this conversation that I myself experienced and this community of people who were similarly wrestling with important questions about connecting the Christian faith to our changing, shifting postmodern culture uh, in large ways helped me bring this story to life. Now, the background for Emergent uh, was around the turn of the century. There were a number of, again, mostly Protestant evangelicals, people like me who came out of very conservative backgrounds who were struggling to connect their faith to the changing world and began asking a whole lot of questions about uh, issues of origin and science, uh, the nature of sin, and if we're born with it or if we later on sort of stumble into it, uh, the person of Jesus, who he is, why he was important. Was it because of his death or was it because of his life and the good things he taught and the good way he lived? Is the resurrection important that he actually was raised from the dead or is the just the notion that his memory lived on is what is important lots of complicated questions right and a lot of that was swirling around me when i was going through my own dark night of the soul when i hit my own crisis of faith and it was a helpful community at the time for me if you know of some of my other writings uh, outside my fiction you will see that i've sort of taken a more critical eye toward that uh, emergent and emerging church conversation. But for the sake of this study and for these chapters and this book, I still am thankful for those relationships and for what I myself experienced and what Peter stumbles into himself. Why do you imagine that for Peter, he resonated so closely and so much with the meeting that he goes to. If you recall, you have Darren, Thomas, and Andrew, and a few other people hanging out at this uh, bar and grill, a restaurant pub down in uh, DuPont Circle. And what Peter experiences is in large ways, what I myself experienced with Emergent and why it was so helpful for me during this crisis period. And we find the answer to what Peter resonated with down at towards the end of the chapter, uh, again in the print book, end of 29. Peter is wondering if Prosurgent is for him, and Darren smiled. Well, mate, you've come to the right place for that. 
I'm not sure we have any of the answers you're looking for. In fact, we're really not all that interested in answers as much as the questions themselves. Because it's in the questions that we believe we are closest to God. God is in the questions. And it's in the questions that we believe the best version of the Christian faith can rise up out of the ashes of our ancestors' traditions in order to move us forward in following God in the way of Jesus. I think what was so important for Peter during this time, and I know it was important for me during this time as well, was that it created space for Peter to just let it all hang out with what he was thinking and feeling, asking the the tough questions and just letting them sort of be there without necessarily answers. Now, there are certainly time for answers. Yes, absolutely. And as we roll through the study, we'll sort of engage some of those. And I myself and my pastoral ministry believe that answers are crucial for people finding uh forgiveness of sins and a renewal and their rescue in Jesus Christ uh, for now and for eternity, for sure. But you know what? There's also a time for questions. (laughs) That's what I needed during this season of my life. And that is what Peter needs here during this own season of his life. Maybe you too. And I wonder, what are the questions that you are asking when it comes to faith, life, and everything in between? So Peter dives deeper in the coming weeks into this group of kindred spirits, charting a new course for Christianity. And he stumbles across a book and a pastor. Actually, two pastors, you could say. <laughs> the one was the author of the book, and the other was the one of the main characters in the book. Of course, that's Brian McLaughlin and his book, A Reimagined Christian, featuring Pastor Jack. Again, a little bit of background there. I took uh, some liberties with the names here uh, because I was trying to connect to uh, this period of my life and some of what was going on in the the broader church community. And I mirrored uh, McLaughlin after another actual pastor called Brian McLaren, who wrote A New Kind of Christian. That book was one of the single greatest influences of my life growing up as a young adult, 20-something Uh, on on my faith and during this period uh, of questioning and not so much doubting, but uh, wrestling. And it was a three-book series, A New Kind of Christian, uh, The Story We Find Ourselves In, and The Last Word and The Word After That. Again, in my other life as a non-Christian writer, I've taken a bit of his ideas to task and have some critiques of some of what he has said. Uh, But that story and the story uh, of the pastor in that series was so crucial for my journey. Because like Peter, who begins to resonate with Pastor Jack, who is a person in ministry who himself was having a crisis of faith, uh, the pastor in Brian's series, uh, McLaren, a new kind of Christian, was similarly in ministry like I was and uh, working through a whole bunch of his 
questions and wrestling with a whole bunch of issues of faith that he had grown up with that didn't seem to work anymore. And that is exactly what I needed. In the middle of my own uh, wrestling and my own crisis, if you will, and journey to step into the shoes of another character to see what he was dealing with, how he was responding, to empathize with his own story and finding so much resonance between his story and my own, which is why I wanted to explore some of these issues and topics and questions in this kind of narrative form through the life of Peter Daniel Young instead of simply writing a nonfiction book that uh, would give all the answers and point you down a particular direction. I think for Peter especially, and I know for myself as well, it was so helpful to be able to look at and uh, sort of get an honest, authentic glimpse into the life story of another person. And I think that there is some instruction there if you are a person on the outside looking in on what another person is going through and how crucial it is for us to have very authentic relationships with those around us that are honest about the struggles we have had with certain questions and certain issues and certain confusing answers to the teachings or doctrines in the church, because it is in authentic relationship that any of us find growth in any areas of our life. But I think that is especially true of our faith. So Peter finds this whole new world opened up to him. Uh, As he says, I felt like Dorothy opening that rickety door into the land of Oz after her house had landed in Munchkinland, leaping from a world of stale, staid black and white into one of full-on high-definition color. It was positively intoxicating. And yet, as freeing and permissive as his book was, I still wondered... Peter still had this uh, nagging doubts in the back of his mind, right, about some of the stuff he was reading and uh, probably the, the idea of straying from and letting loose some of that uh, faith of his past from childhood, from his present, things ranging from creation and human origins and and the history of the world to issues of sin and its nature and hell and uh, other religions and uh, their relationship with Christ. So uh, there's still this tension you sense here, right? Inside Peter, he's trying to find a way forward. Uh, He knows he can't go back or stay put. And yet some of what he sees in front of him, he, he doesn't quite know what to do with it. And so Peter recognizes what I recognized during the same exact tension that I was feeling. And that is, I needed help. (laughs) Peter recognizes that as well. And in chapter 5, Peter finds some of that help in Darren Thomas, who in many ways is a composite of people that helped me during that time as well. There was a whole community of people, actually, who were my age and some who were older, who were kind of neck deep in the same kind of crisis or just a questioning season that I was experiencing and Peter is experiencing here in the story. 
And here is Darren, who just listens. He just sits with him, has uh, a coffee and some pastries, some quiche, Lorraine, and just listens. He provides space for Peter to work through his stuff. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of relationship yourself, or if you have been able to be that for somebody. Maybe you can right now. If so, what was that like? How did they offer themselves to you as a place to just be and ask and wrestle? How have you done that for other people? How can you do that right now? Of course, we learn more about Peter's background, his family, his faith, and a little Easter egg there for you in some of my other work. Uh, If you've read some of my other books, you know that Freedom University, where Peter went, uh, often pops up in some of my other series, The Order of Thaddeus, Group X Cases, and it's one of those creations in my story world uh, of a place uh, where people have gone and where interesting things happen. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. If you've read my books, you know why. But back to the story, we know that some of what Peter is wrestling with here has to deal with the way he tends to approach the Bible. And Darren unpacks how oftentimes the tension that we feel actually uh, comes from that exact reason. And this uh, central theme of our approach to the Bible is really important for the rest of the story, uh, because as Darren reveals... Interpretation is crucial when it comes to the text, because our interpretations are fallible. The authority of the Bible is not invested in the authority of our interpretations. Instead, it's invested in the authority of God. God makes the Bible authoritative. Now, this doesn't mean that any interpretation is up for grabs, that we can just sort of pick and choose which ones suit our fancy. No, what's important is what the text says and what the text means. And God has given us uh, a couple things. One, his Holy Spirit, who Jesus said is our teacher, who teaches us all things in the way of God through the Bible. But we also have the church historic and the communion of saints and the broad witness to what God is saying through the Bible. Darren uh, explains this a bit more by exploring the ways that people often make the Bible out to be. Uh, A rule book, an encyclopedia that answers all our questions about science and good moral living. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no answers in the Bible about our crucial questions. Instead, what uh, the point that Darren is making, and part of what I'm obviously making as an author, is getting at what the Bible is and what is the purpose of this magical revolutionary story of rescue that God has unfolded in these pages. And that's exactly that. It's the story of God's Relationship with humanity unfolding in those pages. Now, this will become clearer as we move through this book and Peter's own story and as he recaptures uh, sort of the purpose of the Bible for himself and for the church and for the world. 
but right now his head's reeling a bit and it starts to reel even more in the final two chapters of this week, chapters six and seven. Of course, those bring us to the great state of Texas, where Peter is on a trip with one of his co-workers, Ainsley, to get training in everyday evangelism. Now, a little more background here of the story. This, in many ways, mirrors another evangelism training program called Evangelism Explosion that I myself was trained in because it was created by the founder of the ministry I worked for, Dr. D. James Kennedy. And that whole experience sparked in me, in many ways, the crisis uh, full on, because I began to really think through what exactly is the nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, after coming through this training, which emphasized heaven as a free gift, just like we find here in Peter's own story which begins to unfold on page 50 when he looks up and finds Harrison asking him whether or not he knew for sure if he was going to be with God in heaven when he died, or whether he was still working out that answer. That's actually one of the diagnostic questions it's called in Evangelism Explosion. And that question sparked it be similar feelings that uh, Peter experiences, especially as he hears the quote-unquote gospel narrative unfold, centering around heaven being this free gift that's neither earned or deserved, the gift that Jesus gave us in his death on the cross, and a gift that we all need to reach out to receive and accept in faith. Now, don't get me wrong, I am super appreciative of Evangelism Explosion and know that the Lord has used it to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Heaven, in terms of the restored order to the world, at the end when Jesus Christ returns, is something that we're looking forward to for eternity. I would frame it not as heaven, but instead as the resurrection of the dead, as the historic Christian faith uh, has framed it since the Apostles' Creeds. Uh, But here we are with Peter experiencing very similar uh, reactions as I did to the idea of heaven being central to the gospel and began to stir up within me all sorts of questions about what exactly is the gospel? Because for Peter, who longs to share that good news of rescue and recreation in Jesus Christ with his friends, he, at the end of chapter 6, realizes that heaven is not at all what his friends are interested in. As we find in page 52, he says, the more I thought about it, the more I realized people nowadays weren't all that concerned with going to heaven. I didn't recall a single conversation with my college students that centered around fear of death or their eternal state. Their fears were entirely this-worldly, not otherworldly. And then Peter goes on to talk about the existential questions. What is the point of life? Why am I here? The personal ones. Will I find a job? Will I get married? The deeper spiritual ones. Is there a God and can I know him? If God is so good, why is life so bad? You know, all the easy, palatable dinner conversational questions, right? (laughs) But, you know, 
what Peter experiences here in Texas is what I experienced myself in D.C. uh, during the season of my life. A total disconnect between the offer and the desire when it came to the gospel message that came from, in this case, everyday evangelism. In my case, uh, evangelism explosion. And this creates even more tension in Peter, and he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know how to resolve it. And he wonders at the top of chapter seven, is this what the message of Christianity is all about? A sales pitch to get people to heaven? Is this what the church is all about? A force of salespeople trying to meet sales goals and benchmarks all in the name of Jesus? Man, that's a lot to wrestle with, isn't it? And it was a lot for me to wrestle with because that's exactly what I was thinking during this season of my own life. And these questions, this tension that Peter feels here in the middle of ministry training for the very ministry he's working on begins to get him in a bit of hot water with his ministry coworkers, specifically Ainsley, who's also... Along for the ride as Peter works through all of this spiritual tension. And we will get to that tension between the relationship of Peter and Ainsley next week when we look at chapters 8 through 12. Thanks so much for joining me on this first week through the second Religion and Fiction book club, exploring a reimagined faith. All of the questions from the episode are down in the episode show notes. So be sure to lend your voice to the discussion and subscribe to the newsletter to receive weekly insights into the intersection of the sacred and story. Really look forward to week two, exploring chapters eight through 12. Until then, happy reading.